And this is WMNF Tampa, and this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest Ipsos Reuters poll, which finds that 53% of Republicans say Trump is the true president, with 56% of Republicans believing the 2020 election was either rigged or a result of illegal voting, and that 54% agree that the Capitol riot was led by violent left-wing protesters trying to make Make Trump look bad. Joining us in an attempt to understand the new Republican Party's mindset and its divorce from reality is Lloyd Green, a Republican who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Justice Department from 1991 to 1992 and is a contributing writer to The Guardian. We'll discuss the even more alarming finding that 87% of Republicans in the survey believe new limits should be placed on voting to protect future elections from fraud. Then we'll get an analysis of the White House meeting Friday between President Biden and South Korean President Moon and speak with Sung Yoon Lee, a professor of international affairs at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a faculty associate at the US-Japan program at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. He joins us to discuss Biden's revival of Obama's tilt towards Asia and Biden's call for a denuclearized Korean peninsula. Then finally, we'll speak with best-selling author and documentary filmmaker Sebastian Younger about his new book, Just Out, Freedom, which explores the American myth of rugged individualism to find that enjoying freedom from oppression does not mean you have freedom from obligation. We'll discuss Sebastian's 400-mile journey along railroad tracks through cities and backwoods from the perspective of vagrants or homeless men observing America as outsiders from the shadows. And joining us now is Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice from 1990 to 1992. He's now a contributing writer at The Guardian. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lloyd Green. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you, uh, Lloyd. And there's an extraordinary and alarming poll that's come out from Ipsos Reuters on Friday that finds over half of Republicans say Trump is the true president of the United States. And it finds that 53% of Republicans say Trump is the true president, with 56% of Republicans believing the 2020 election was either rigged or the result of illegal voting, and that 54% agree that the Capitol riot was led by violent left-wing protesters trying to make Trump look bad. So, and there's a lot more findings as well, but let's start out with that. This is a, a huge problem we have, isn't it, in this country, between the reality-based community and this political fiction? Um, it's a problem for the country. It's a problem for democracy. Um, it's one thing to contest elections, and then abide by the result. And it's another thing to say it really doesn't matter what happens in the outcome of any litigation or challenge. We're going to believe what we want to believe, and we're going to act that way. Um, you go back to 2000, 
Al Gore won the popular vote, but it came down to what happened in Florida. There was a lot of back and forth on it. At the end of the day, Al Gore conceded and then was presided over the vote in the Senate when the Senate ratified the election of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. That's not what happened here. Over here, you ended up having a, an insurrection that stormed the Capitol. Um, the first time the Capitol was under this type of attack since the War of 1812. So that should give a lot of people pause about the state of democracy in the United States and the rawness of American politics these days. Well, one of the more alarming findings in this new Ipsos Reuters poll is that 87% of Republicans surveyed say that it's important for the government to place new limits on voting to protect future elections from fraud. So that is the big lie has sunk in and it's metastasized. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, and it, it, it's a big lie that already plays off of existing suspicions. The GOP, is, the core of the party at this point, is afraid of losing its position in the United States. The GOP has not won a popular, the last time the GOP won a, the popular vote, as well as winning in the Electoral College, was 2004 with George W. Bush. The time before that was 1988 with his father. There's a sense that the party's grasp on at least the White House is now always up for grabs and that the majority of the popular vote will not be with them. And so it, it almost becomes an easy um, lie and line to pitch saying, hey, things are rigged and we need to tighten up fraud. The other problem that the GOP itself has is America's um, America is becoming more diverse and it's not your winning candidate is not necessarily the candidate whom the majority of white voters back and particularly among Republicans that is something of definite interest um, and more than interest it becomes a matter of concern and alarm but what's happened is that this embrace of unreality uh, and creating your own reality, which is what these statistics indicate, doesn't this mean that this is a license now for the Trump GOP? Instead of competing, they've decided to cheat rather than compete? Um, yes. I mean, take a look what's happening in Arizona. Arizona's having this half-cocked election audit. If you could tell me what it accomplishes or it achieves other than fan suspicion, that's about it. And over there, you end up getting serious conservative Republicans, at least in Maricopa County, pushing back on this whole audit phenomenon. But the thing is, that's not the one and only place where that is going on. You're now, the other night in Georgia, um, the courts agreed that, yeah, they can go ahead and have one of these audits. And if you can tell me what an audit is that wasn't accomplished by a recount, I'm mystified. But like it or not, that's what's now happening in Georgia. And Georgia is going to be a hotly contested state in 2022 because this is the governor's race. And it's going to be hotly contested again in 2024 because of the narrow margin. And over the past half century, what we had seen 
was a movement toward greater participation, uh, elimination of restrictions on voting. And now you're going just the opposite direction in red states, saying we need to throw up more barriers to uh, voting. We're going to increase the participation cost if you want to get to the polls. And again, I'm speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice from 1990 to 1992. And Lloyd, obviously you are or were a Republican, and I just am asking you in a, in a somewhat desperate way, how do you turn this around? How do you bring back reality? I mean, uh, you know, we, we kind of miss the days of Walter Cronkite, Uncle Walter, giving the nightly news. There was a consensus in this country about what was real and what was true. That consensus has been broken. People have become siloed. They've gone off into their own little bubbles uh, where they do reality shopping, where they only listen to news that conforms with their pre-existing biases, etc. So I know it's a broader question than just, it's really about America itself as opposed to the Republican Party. But since we have this retreat into unreality, how do we deal with it? I think the way you end up dealing with it is, I mean, you have to deal with it on multiple levels, but you have to be prepared to deal with it slowly. I mean, there's no instant quick fix. Um, there was a book that just came out by Isaac Dover, Edward Isaac Dover, um, on essentially what's happening within the Democratic Party. And, they, and he interviews uh, Joe Biden. And Biden tells me, he said, one of his big hopes is that at least he can stop the backlash that occurred in response to the Obama presidency. Um, and so what he's, what the president said on that score, I think, is basically the Democratic Party's hope, whether that rea that becomes reality, is a very different story. Um, and the way you do it is try to turn down the temperature. That's one piece. Um, the other way you wind up doing it is, um, and I know it becomes, as a matter of vote counting, it becomes difficult reaching across the aisle. But I think there just has to be some openness to dialogue um, with folks across the aisle, as inconvenient as it may be. I mean, it's one thing when you're dealing with someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is off in the stratosphere of her own making. It's another thing when you're talking to someone like Sue Collins of uh, Maine. I mean, she may be digging in on budget negotiations, but she's in touch with reality. Um, you look to the senators who voted to certify the election. You look to the Republicans in the House who voted to certify the election. I mean, that's the point where you end up having an intersection with reality. Um, and it's slow, and it may well not be satisfying. But none of this can be undone overnight. But, Lloyd, what explains the fact that most presidents, like Jimmy Carter goes off and builds houses for Habitat for Humanity, George W. Bush goes off and paints pictures of dogs. You know, this guy, Trump, he's more powerful than ever, in effect. He controls the Republican Party. He's a kingmaker. And one of the, another one of the alarming findings in this new Ipsos Reuters poll 
is looking ahead to 2024. Nearly two-thirds of Republican voters said they think Trump should run for president again in the next election. Um, first, talking about um, Presidents Carter and Bush, I think both of them, for what it is worth, had a quiet religious streak within them that, that was organic. And I think there was a certain sense of tranquility that both men um, knew how to relish. I don't think Donald Trump has that streak, and I think that's why you're getting the constant royal and the constant anger. Moving from there, um, the 60% number may actually be a come down from just immediately after the, uh, the insurrection, if that's any, um, if that's any consolation. The other thing I would just keep an open eye on is Franklin Graham the other day raised the possibility that Donald Trump, Minister Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, raised the possibility that he would be, that Trump might be too old in 2024, which is a very polite way of saying if you're going to stay, it's one thing for you to be the director, choreographer, and narrator. It's another thing for you to be the candidate. Um, But the one thing that Trump did as a candidate and as president was, in a sense, reach out and electrify and solidify the base of the GOP. The GOP is no longer what I would call the party of Reagan. It's definitely not the party of George H.W. Bush. Um, it is a white working class party. It is heavily evangelical. Um, and it is also not the party of college graduates. Um, it's a party of its core is white voters without a four-year degree. And they're feeling angry. They're feeling as though Washington neglected them. And Trump is a walking case of revenge. And uh, that's their guy. And that's why they're going to stick with him, at least for the short term. Well, that's a pretty depressing a fact that the Democrats really, don't they own some of that? They're supposed to be the party of the working class. And the idea that they've allowed this constituency to become so alienated, I mean, is it on the Democrats? Um, and do they have There's to fix this? Of, put it this way. The Democrats had a definite hand in it. Think of it this way. The grandchildren of the New Deal made it to the elite institutions. The concerns of their parents and their grandfathers about the working man and working woman ceased being their primary concern. And the folks who, in a sense, could be described as left behinds noticed it. Another piece that went with it became social issues. Um, It simply didn't end with voting rights or equal protection under the law. It moved off into areas of law enforcement, and that scares a good chunk of the country. Um, when law and order becomes a, simply a Republican slogan and the Democrats become reluctant to deal with it, it becomes a problem for the Democratic Party. You look at law and order. Um, Bill Clinton had no problem with tackling the issue of law and order. These days, it became a much tougher sell within the Democratic Party, not for Joe Biden, but for other wings of the party. And that remains a hot cultural issue that will continue to nag at the Democrats moving forward. I mean, culture matters, crime matters. 
Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, obviously you've got with, again, going back to this poll, you've got 39% of Republican respondents saying that they strongly agree that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. There's not much right. you can do about that. But some nope. of the findings about independence is not particularly encouraging either, that uh, only a slight majority of independent voters, 54%, uh, said that they were confident in mail-in and absentee ballots were counted accurately. And only 16% of independent voters said they think Biden won as a result of election rigging or illegal voting. So it's sort of seeped a little bit into the independent world as well. So how much of this is is the propaganda organ? Because the big lie, of course, has all sorts of overtones of Orwell and the Nazis and Goebbels of Stalin, etc. Do you think that those analogies are accurate, that we are, you mentioned, started out by saying American democracy itself is in danger. Well, what happens if the Republicans win in 2022 through gerrymandering and vote rigging, and then if they take the House, they can decide to decertify the election results they don't like. Aren't we heading in that direction? That's a definite possibility. Um, it's a definite possibility. One of the reasons that the when it came to an actual vote on challenges, vote went nowhere, though it ended up creating a lot of noise. And just a, it was an ugly day for America on January 6th. But one of the reasons was the Democrats controlled the House. Um, you could see this challenge done again. And you could see state legislatures trying to take control over the election process. Um, and particularly in states that end up having a Republican legislature and a Republican governor combined. Um, and you could wind up seeing even on election day, a rollback in history of state legislators saying, you know what, we are now going to take control of the electoral college process. And I'll re refer to it as going back, to roots or in, um, protecting against fraud, uh, but you could see something like that, um, no question. And so that's why the 2022 midterms are a very big deal. So I think the Democrats have to remain vigilant in the midterms, and they also have to be mindful that cultural issues hurt them in the 2020 midterms. There was about a three-point difference between voting for um, Joe Biden as opposed to House Democrats. Uh, the question is, what lessons do the Democrats take away from that? What lessons do they internalize from that? Well, Lloyd Green, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. And again, I'm speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice from 1990 to 1992. He's now a contributing writer at The Guardian. We're going to take a brief station break. We'll be back with an analysis of the White House meeting Friday between President Biden and South Korean President Moon. I'm sick and tired of hearing things. As part of WMNF's mission calendar, we are playing, paying special attention to mental health awareness in May. We know many listeners or their loved ones are struggling. If you need help, you can reach out to the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. That's number is 211. That's 211. WMF is here for you, too. Thanks for listening. Just give me some 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sung Yoon Lee, a professor of international affairs at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And he is a faculty associate at the U.S.-Japan program at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sung Yoon Lee. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the second summit that Biden has had in the White House, first being with the Japanese leader, now with the South Korean leader, President Moon, would indicate that there's a strategy behind that, right? Yeah, this is part of um, the, the redux replay of Obama's pivot to Asia, so-called, uh, during which time Biden, of course, was the vice president. And the emphasis on U.S. alliance with respect to East Asia, the Asia-Pacific, is in full display. In terms of the optics, uh, due to no fault of the Japanese prime minister, the optics were warmer. Um, no one was wearing a mask, for instance. Um, the meeting itself was longer than the meeting between Biden and J- Japanese Prime Minister Suga. So the optics were good on substance. However, I fear a bit of controversy, that is. All the right things were said, but the fact that both leaders mentioned human rights repeatedly even with with respect to North Korean human rights, gives North Korea some fodder for slamming Moon Jae-in, calling him names, and using that as a pretext for the next for the next North Korean provocation. But in terms of North Korea, didn't Biden suggest that he would be open to a meeting? But he didn't want to do what Trump did. He didn't mention Trump by name, but he basically said all Trump did was dignify and elevate Kim Jong-un on the world stage. And I would agree with that characterization. I think President Trump, due to maybe out of hubris and certainly out of ignorance of the North Korean state, um, just jumped, lunged at the first opportunity when Kim Jong-un made that proposition for a summit meeting in March 2018. Trump said, okay, right on the spot. That was a mistake, I would say. And Biden's remained consistent on... Uh, saying that he is willing, certainly, to engage North Korea or even meet with Kim Jong-un, but under only under the right circumstance, when North Korea gives a clear signal that it is serious about denuclearization. Biden said that uh, during his first press conference in late March, and again at this meeting, it's in the joint statement. So, you know, that's the right approach, the right tone to strike. In other words, to say that your goal is the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. In other words, if North Korea gives up this nuclear weapons, the U.S. would pull its nuclear weapons out, which I believe it's done at any rate, but largely. They're offshore mostly, but still. Isn't that really unlikely at the end of the day? Isn't nuclear weapons just about the only card that Kim Jong-un has to play? It is. When you think of the conventional indices of measuring state power, what does North Korea have, not only vis-a-vis the big powers in the region, but vis-a-vis South Korea, an alternate Korean state that is so much more prosperous, successful, legitimate, 
pleasant than North Korea. All North Korea has is its military power and, of course, nuclear weapons provide North Korea with a lot of security and also offensive properties. So it's exceedingly unlikely that Kim Jong-un at this point or at any point would be amenable to parting ways with his nuclear arsenal. So what do you think is going on in the north? There's been a fairly ominous silence for some time. Some of the reports you get are that COVID is out of control. I know Kim Jong-un was, was paranoid about it. They have a, obviously a very frail healthcare system there. So what do you know? Because there was a report that I think Russian diplomats were getting out of the country, afraid of catching it. Sure. North Korea was one of um, the first countries, if not the first country, to completely seal its border. And North Korea shares with China a very long, porous border, 900 miles or so. North Korea did it right right away in late January um, in 2020. And as a result, North Korea-China trade has drastically been reduced to about 10% of what it was the year before in 2019. So severe shortage of basic amenities, goods, cooking, oil, grain, rice, and so on. We know that's been a problem for the vast majority of the North Korean population, if not for the elites themselves. Uh, At the same time, for North Korea um, to come out now and be willing to be engaged by the Biden administration uh, doesn't work in North Korea's interest. I would say North Korea needs to reset the stage, enhance, increase its net value. How does North Korea do that? Which lacks soft power, which lacks economic power, has only military power? Well, cause problems, export insecurity, conduct another major weapons test. And then after tempers calm down after a decent interval, North Korea comes out beaming smiles and says, let's talk. And invariably, the other powers take the bait because the alternative is not necessarily more pleasant. And that pattern of provocations, return to negotiations, reap bigger concessions, that's been North Korea's game over the past three decades. So I expect Kim Jong-un to use that playbook uh, perfected by his father and in the coming weeks and months, resort to a major provocation. For now, probably Kim Jong-un's sister, who's been very vocal, who's used uh, nasty invective to slam the South Korean president, who's been so gracious to her when she visited South Korea on the eve of the Winter Games in early 2018. I expect the first sister of North Korea, Kim Yo-jong, to issue another statement, even over the weekend, slamming Moon Jae-in for being a parrot raised by America, as she um, said in a written statement last month, Um, and uh, Pan slammed Moon Moon Jae-in for giving concessions to the United States without really gaining anything in return. And again, I'm speaking with Sung Yoon Lee, who's a professor of international affairs at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Andy is a faculty associate at the US-Japan program at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. So tell me about some of the work that you've been doing. You were a, um, a witness in the trial of Otto Warmbier's parents. He was killed by the North Koreans. We came back brain dead from North Korea. 
and yes. they were suing the North Korean government, obviously. But then you're also involved in this other extraordinary case. Uh, I don't know whether you're able to talk about it, but it involves a group of Korean Americans, uh, former m Marines, etc., that have formed a group that seem to be trying to kind of get North Korean diplomats to defect, and they pulled off an operation or an abortive operation in uh, Madrid with uh, North Korea's ambassador to Spain. But now they're being sued here in federal court in Los Angeles by the Spanish government who wants to extradite them. So can you fill us in on this? I'm surprised it's not a, a big local news story, frankly. Yeah, so let's start with the Madrid North Korean embassy incident in February 2019, just five days before President Trump was to meet Kim Jong-un in Hanoi in Vietnam. There was an incident. Apparently, there were nine outsiders who infiltrated or, as they claim, were invited to enter the North Korean embassy. Uh, one official at the embassy had sought asylum, had requested help. Um, for defection for himself, his wife, and their minor child. And something went wrong. There was a woman in the North Korean embassy who didn't know what was going on, uh, got rattled, and she jumped out the window, hurt herself. A bystander found her. They called the police. So uh, the would-be defector, the North Korean official, got rattled himself and said, no, I can't. I changed my mind. And the uh, members of this anti-North Korean resistance movement called Free Joseon, Free Korea, they left the compound. No one was arrested at the time. And they came back to the U.S. and handed over to the FBI electronic uh, goodies, USB cell phones, laptops that they had taken from the North Korean embassy. Now, the Spanish authorities, based upon North Korean accounts, that they were attacked, beaten, handcuffed, uh, threatened, intimidated, and so on. The Spanish authorities, the Spanish government requested the United States to extradite these uh, suspects. And Christopher Ahn, who is a former U.S. Marine, a resident of Los Angeles, was indeed arrested by U.S. Marshals more than two years ago in April 2019. And this week, he faces a court hearing in a federal court in L.A. Um, with respect to his extradition, impending possible extradition to Spain. My view is the entire case um, brought on by Spain is flawed, I would say, is without merit because it is almost entirely based on North Korean testimonies. And in this incident, when you had nine people staying over four hours inside the North Korean embassy and leaving without taking any North Korean hostages, it raises questions in North Korea. What happened? Were some North Korean officials complicit? So the North Korean people have a life and death incentive to lie, to exaggerate, to say that they were coerced, attacked viciously, tried valiantly to defend themselves, but were overpowered. And indeed, when you look at the evidence, um, the, their accounts, what North Koreans say are just riddled with contradictions, falsehoods. One guy says he was handcuffed and he found the key, freed himself. Next moment, he's seen walking out to meet the police with his hands behind his back. Uh, another guy says... Uh, he was tied, his hands were tied behind his back with uh, cable, 
but another uh, colleague with a kitchen knife freed him. And then other North Koreans say, no, we found him with um, cable ties, you know, hands behind his back and so on. And that's the way he was when the police found him. So, uh, you know, apparently the people put cuffs on, you know, tie themselves up um, and told uh, false stories. But that is the case. And it's extraordinary that the United States government is executing uh, an arrest warrant based exclusively on North Korean accounts. Well, surely these North Koreans, and particularly the, um, <clears throat> their ambassador to Spain, are terrified that they'd be executed, if there's even any whiff that they were contemplating defection, right? I mean, they're covering their tracks, aren't they? Well, they need to, and their families. Every North Korean stationed abroad on a visit abroad, um, their actions, their behavior, their words are weighed against the hostages, their loved ones, their associates back home. Uh, no North Korean is ever free to travel alone. You know, they travel in pairs overseas, that is, uh, to keep an eye on each other. So for the North Korean officials at the embassy in Madrid, Spain, for them to say anything other than that they were completely victimized is to ask for really capital punishment or a life in a gulag. So they really have an incentive to lie. And again, you know, the accounts, the testimonies by North Koreans are just full of holes. So uh, we'll have to see what happens. But that is an extraordinary situation right now. With respect to the warm beers, Otto Warmbier, our listeners might recall, was a college student who visited North Korea in late 2015. He was arrested in early January 2016 on the false bogus charge that he had stolen a political poster from the hotel he was staying in um, in an attempt to undermine the basic unity or the ideological foundation of the North Korean state with CIA support, which is, you know, just an outrageous uh, allegation. Uh, he was tortured. He had to go through a forced uh, confession in March 2016. And sometime in April, he fell into a coma from the cessation of blood flow to his brain. And North Korea did not tell anyone outside North Korea, Otto Wundir's family, about this terrible condition for the next 14 months and only released him in June the following year in 2017, the Warmbiers were able to sue the North Korean state thanks to President Trump putting North Korea back on the state sponsors of terrorism list, which enables civilians, American citizens, to sue the North Korean state. Uh, so state sovereign immunity does not apply in this case. And in December, the Warmbiers uh, sued or they had a hearing at a federal court in Washington, D.C. I was asked to submit an expert declaration and testify as an expert witness. Um, and a few days later, the federal judge, Beryl Howell, the chief justice, issued her judgment, her ruling in favor of the plaintiffs, the Warmbiers, and awarded them $501 million dollars. Most of that is in punitive damages as a deterrence against North Korea so that North Korea is deterred, discouraged from taking hostage of Americans, beating them, torturing them and killing them. And what are the chances of collecting that 500 million? 
All of it, um, that would be impossible. But uh, there is actually a pot of gold, if you will, a large amount of money uh, administered, managed by the Department of Justice. Um, Victims, U.S. victims of sponsors of state terrorism fund, U.S. victims of uh, state-sponsored terrorism fund, and there's over a billion dollars there, the Warmbiers will get eventually a portion, a small portion of that. But the Warmbiers are very active. They're actually going after North Korea's money trail, North Korean entities, illegal commercial enterprises under the guise of diplomatic immunity in various countries. Uh, the Warmbiers were able to persuade the German government to shut down a youth hostel within the North Korean embassy compound that they were using for profit, which is in contravention of the Geneva Convention on uh, Consular uh, Affairs on Diplomatic Mm -hmm. Missions. So the warm years are very uh, vigorous in going after North Korea, and they want to change... They're trying to tell North Korea what they can do and what they cannot do by putting financial pressure on the regime. Sure. And of course, this group that you mentioned, the Free Korea group that you're testifying on behalf, they also managed to get the family of the half-brother of Kim Jong-un's, who was murdered by sarin nerve gas in um, airport in Malaysia, they managed to get his family out of Macau. So, we should, you, you know who did? It's Christopher Ahn. Um, the the guy that's on trial in Los exactly. Angeles. Exactly. Right. Well, we should look further into that story. And as I say, I'm surprised that the local press hasn't picked up on it. Um, but I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much, sir, Sung Yun Lee. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I'm speaking with Sung Yun Lee, who's a professor of international affairs at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Andy is a faculty associate at the U.S.-Japan program at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with the best-selling author and documentary filmmaker, Sebastian Younger, about his new book, Just Out, Freedom. But the Adams here, in spite of hysteria, flourishes in Utah as well as Siberia. And whether you're a black, white, red, or brown, the question is this when you boil it down. To be or not to be, that's the question. The answer to it all ain't military datum like who gets there firstest with the mostest atoms. No, the people of the world must decide their fate. They got to get together or disintegrate. A whole less truth to be self-evident that all men may be cremated equal. And this is WMNF Tampa.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sebastian Younger, who is the New York Times bestselling author of Tribe, War, A Death in Belmont, Fire and the Perfect Storm, and the co-director of the documentary Restrepo, which was nominated for an Academy Award. He's also the winner of a Peabody Award and the National Magazine Award for Reporting. And his latest book, Just Out, is Freedom. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sebastian Younger. Hi there, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And this new book is a a journey that you took uh, with a couple of veterans from the Afghan war who were in, I believe, in Restrepo, along with a photojournalist, a Spanish photojournalist, who was with your friend and colleague and co-director of Restrepo, Tim Hetherington, who was killed in Libya. And I, I take it that you had originally planned to do this trip along the backwoods on the railroad tracks starting in Washington, D.C., going through Baltimore, Philadelphia, and then on to Pittsburgh. So was that the original plan? Yeah, and, you know, I should say only only part of the book is about that trip. It, it, it's called Freedom, and it's an inquiry into what allows us to be free as human beings. But, uh, yeah, so we walked, we, we, const- we thought of it as a kind of high-speed vagrancy. Uh, we walked along the sort of no-man's land of the railroad, railroad lines, up from D.C. to Philly, we were going to go to New York, and then we decided to head west, and we headed for, for Pittsburgh. And, you know, it, we we were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and out in the woods and getting our water out of creeks. And every few days we'd walk through a town and buy more food and keep going and get back up on the lines. You know, it's totally illegal to walk on the railroad line, so you have to sort of hide when trains come through because the engineers will call you in. And uh, a couple of times the police were looking for us. But we got very adept at sort of like skirting the margins of society and staying out of sight. And we had this extraordinary encounter, not only with ourselves, but with our, with the country. Uh, I mean, railroad lines go right through the middle of everything, through the ghettos and the suburbs and the farms and the woods and right through the center of everything. And, and it, it is this weird no man's land. There's a lot of marginal people out there. And we became part of that world. It was, um, you know, we were moving 10, 15, 20 miles a day. Sometimes, uh, one day we did, um, a 40 and 40, 40 miles and 40 hours. And, you know, we're carrying a load, like we're carrying 60, 70 pounds and we're cooking for ourselves and stuff. So it's, it was a really weird and unbelievably grueling process. It was about 400 miles. So was there a purpose to the idea of being subversive, being hidden, living like the homeless, looking at the world from the point of view of outsiders? Well, it was required by where we were going. We were on the railroad lines. It's illegal. We had to stay out of sight and vigilant. Um, also, you know, someone shot at us in Pennsylvania. You know, I mean, there were some, whatever, there were some tricky moments. So we had we had just our basic security uh, in question at times. So um, we had to be careful with that. Um, but, you know, to, to, you know, I think to a deeper point, um, I I wanted to understand the society that we all live in. And it's hard to understand something if you're completely dependent on it and embedded in it uh, or completely outside it. We could have walked the Appalachian Trail, but that wouldn't have illuminated much, although it's very beautiful out there. One of the things I say in my book is you know, we, we covered about 400 miles, and most nights we were the only people in the world who knew where we were. And that is a, that's a very profound it's, profound form of freedom. There are many definitions of freedom, but that's sort of one of them. And I, you know, my book is divided into three sections, run, fight, and think. And those are the three 
tactics that people use to maintain their autonomy in the face of a, of a greater power. Uh, and the most elemental being run. I mean, just be more mobile than the society that would uh, would try to control you. And, you know, the Apache did that, uh, Genghis Khan, you know, whatever. Like the, the mobiles, there's a huge split in our history, human history, between mobile societies and sedentary ones. And mobility is a very, very uh, reliable path to maintaining your autonomy. And, of course, the amygdala is the, f- the fight-or-flight part of the brain. I guess it goes back to when primitive men were running away from saber-toothed tigers. Well, yeah, I mean, there's this sort of sprint away from an immediate danger, but, you know, on a, on a sort of larger larger scale, there are societies that are just more mobile. And, you know, for example, the Apache, they were very materially poor, right? Their Pueblo, the Pueblo communities in the Southwest were much more affluent. They used irrigation. They had, you know, fields they planted they lived in these sort of impregnable towns on mesas and the spanish rolled them up immediately in the late 1500s the apache lasted another 300 years because they were poor and very mobile and the last band of apache was finally rounded up uh and put on a reservation in the late 1880s and that's almost within my grandmother's lifetime they maintained their autonomy because they were poor and mobile. You cannot be wealthy and mobile. It just does not work. So in terms of the third part of your book, run, fight, and think, the think part of it is the part that I'm interested in in as much as <laughs> I'm trying to ana- do an analysis of the day's news five days a week and right. try to find the smartest, best-connected most authoritative people on whatever the subjects in the news are and to sort of get a yeah. briefing out of them as though, as though you're in the Oval Office and you're getting, you know, the daily briefing, etc. So that's the sort of conceit. And much of what I see today is quite troubling in the sense that your book, of course, is titled Freedom, but the people that stormed the Capitol on January the 6th would use the word liberty, and it seems to me that in many ways, liberty today in America is threatening life and the pursuit of happiness. Well, I mean, listen, bad actors misuse words all the time. The word patriotism has been flo- thrown around by, uh, you know, all, all kinds of un- unsavory characters in, in history. And, you know, likewise with the word freedom, uh, uh, freedom means that you maintain your autonomy from a controlling power, usually an enemy. Uh, when you're talking about y- your your situation within your own society, people misuse the f- word freedom when they're really talking about their rights. And what the 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 people that stormed the the Capitol on January 6th, what they don't realize, I think, is that rights are not self-given. Um, they are given by the community to the individual. And, uh, and it's a collective decision. You do not have the right. Whatever you think of your, 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 your freedom or freedoms, often they, use, they put it in the plural, which is just a grammatical absurdity. But often they, they, they think you know, that they're, they're sort of free to do whatever they want. You actually are not free to drive on the left-hand side of the road in this country because you'll kill people. And if you try to do it, you will be arrested. You cannot give yourself that right. Um, and and uh, so so the, you know the people that that stormed the Capitol. You know if you ask them what what freedom do you think you're defending, 
um, you know, they wouldn't have an articulate answer. I mean, what they were really doing was trying to take power and take power through intimidation and violence, uh, which obviously has a, as a, as a long and bloody history in, in the, for the human race. Um, uh, but let's not, let's not lose the word freedom, the beautiful words, freedom and liberty and justice and things like that, just because some bad actors misuse them. Uh, I would hate to give that up to them. And again, I'm speaking with Sebastian Younger, the New York Times bestselling author of Tribe, War, A Death in Belmont, Fire, and The Perfect Storm. And he's the co-director of the documentary Restrepo, which was nominated for an Academy Award. And he's also the winner of the Peabody Award and the National Magazine Award for Reporting. And his latest book just out is Freedom. But when you mentioned uh, you got shot at, as you got into the sort of backwoods of Pennsylvania and you came across signs more or less saying... (laughs) If you cross this line, we'll shoot you. What is going on there in terms of how many people in this country feel the need to have assault rifles and wear camo and open carry, etc.? What is the source of... Because it frankly looks to me like a form of paranoia. I just don't understand why we have to be constantly vigilant against the notion that our fellow Americans would kill us. I mean, and therefore you have to be that heavily armed as though you're in combat and you've certainly seen your share of combat well I, we were shot at i think it sounded like a 22 pistol uh, i wasn't definitely wasn't an assault rifle but I, I take your point um i i i don't know what that honestly i don't um i don't know what that impulse is i think it's a form of representing oneself to the world as being that you should be taken seriously and not trifled with. And particularly, I think there's a sort of like veneer of, well, if someone breaks into my home, I can defend myself, which, you know, it happens to someone somewhere, right? It's not like that never happens. And there's some horrible stories of home invasions that, that I mean, just hideous. I, you know, we all know, have read those stories in the paper. So, it, you know, I do sort of understand that, The but the um, the sort of, displaying of firearms that sort in almost the fetishizing of firearms, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's a cultural signifier and a political signifier for a certain kind of conservatism. But I also think there's a very, and always has been a very strong anti government, um, streak in this country. And there's a symbolic content to carrying the same weapon that the military carries. There's the symbolic content of, if you come after me, I will defend myself and I'll be successful. So, you know, careful, careful what you do. Like, don't come onto my property. Uh, I mean, and, and, you know, it's all theater, right? Like nobody's, there aren't any shootouts really. I mean, once in a while, right? You know, every 20 years there's a shootout with, you know, like, you know, anti-government forces and the government, like we all remember Waco, Texas, et cetera. But, you know, but really spoken, it's not, that's not how people preserve their, their um, rights in this country. They preserve their rights by voting in elections and by, and by convincing Congress to pass laws or to rescind laws. Well, the Second Amendment, of course, says that a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, a citizen's right to bear arms should not be infringed. The predicate being being necessary for the security of a free state, you could argue that we're neither secure or free if we can't go into movie theaters and malls without being afraid of being mowed down. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think the you know I think the sort of gun rights lobby would say, well, that's why we need to be armed because if someone tries to mow me down, I'm going to kill him. 
that would be their response. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have a vote in this fight particularly. Like I'm, right. just, but I'm just trying to like sort out what the issues seem to be for both sides. Right, but it's all done in the name of freedom. So, the point that you're making is this: there's freedom, and then there's sort of responsibility to your community and to your fellow Americans. And absolutely, I, and it's uh, always been the case. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that is the the kind of crux of the matter, isn't it? That's the kind of the fulcrum upon which your book is based, right? Well, I, you know, it's not based on America today, right? It, I mean, it's not focused on America today. Um, you know, I, I, I start um, with uh, chimpanzees. So, you know, we're social primates. Our closest relatives are chimpanzees. Uh, it's a top-down male hierarchy. There's very little personal autonomy within chimpanzee society. Humans are different. Uh, one of the things that makes them different is that um, a smaller combatant, only in, in, in humans among mammals, can a smaller combatant or group defeat a larger one. That's only true in humans. And as a result, freedom is possible. Um, the, um, the ability of a small group to sort of outfight and outlast, you know, an empire type force, the Han dynasty or the Romans or the British empire or whatever it may be, allows for smaller, weaker societies to be self-defining. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, all the way, I, I, I take the, the, examination of freedom all the way on through the labor movement in this country, um, you know, about a hundred years ago when very, very poor disenfranchised, often immigrant uh, laborers and their families uh, went on strike for better working conditions and higher pay. And, you know, they were hopelessly outgunned by the government and the, and the, and the, the national guard and all that. But they, you know, as in the Easter rising in Ireland around the same time, they sort of out thought, they sort of out strategized their opponents and, one one of the things that they did was put was to put women into the movement. Women are really really important for social change, and uh, so once they put women on the front lines in the labor strikes, uh, say in Lawrence, Massachusetts, um, about a hundred years ago, hundred ten years ago, they um, once they put women on the front lines, the, the the National Guard and the cops didn't know what to do. They didn't want to. They're way more reluctant to inflict violence on women than on men, which is a pretty much universal. And so. Um, uh, when one co one police captain said in frustration, he said, one cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And so that's where this sort of chess game of strategy and outthinking a more powerful opponent allows for even immigrant labor in this country to make profound changes in our society. Well, of course, the, the mythology is deep within us, within our literature, within our movies. It, I guess it, it certainly goes back earlier than David and Goliath, but it is that sort of David and Goliath idea, is it not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone loves the story. You've been listening to Background Briefing here on WMNF Tampa. Want to stay tuned for NPR News, and then Sean Canan will be in with Midpoint. Franco Silva will be in with music after that. So uh, we'll have a great afternoon of music. Flea has two hours. And uh, don't go anywhere. Stay right here.